You'll see from the scripture this morning that I will be preaching from the Old Testament, from Psalm nine, uh, 19. I told Jeremiah I'd be staying away as much as possible from Hebrew this morning with uh, him and, and Hannah uh, both with us. Uh, even though I made nearly perfect scores uh, in Hebrew, uh, our last assignment uh, in the Hebrew class was our professor told us we had to translate Job chapter 12, uh, one of the most difficult portions of the Old Testament to translate. And he said, I'm going to show y'all that you really don't know Hebrew, even though you think you do. And indeed, we found out in that assignment that we really did not know Hebrew. So uh, anyway, I'll stay away from much of that Hebrew this morning. But anyway, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And uh, in addition to uh, Psalm chapter 19, uh, we will also be making reference to Romans chapter 1. So you may want to find Romans 1 uh, for later on uh, in the message. You notice it's addressed to the choir master, a psalm of David. I want to bring a message this morning entitled, The God Who Speaks. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, we just want to express our gratitude today that you are indeed the God who speaks. And today I pray that we would hear your voice in your word with great clarity. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work today bringing conviction where that is needed, bringing comfort where that is needed. And indeed, if any, if any are here, even one that does not know Christ in a personal way, that today would be the day that they would understand your love and the plan of salvation 
That your Holy Spirit would draw them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to cherish your word. To realize that you are a God who communicates. And how desperately we need that in society today. Because the world is like a desert. It's dry. And Father, oftentimes we find ourselves caught up in that. And we need the refreshing touch of your word. Give us that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Helen Keller was born in 1880. She passed away in 1968. At 19 months of age, she contracted what is now believed to have been either a case of meningitis or scarlet fever. The illness left her in darkness she could neither see nor hear. At seven years of age, the family was able to secure the help of 20-year-old Ann Sullivan, herself visually impaired, to move into the Keller household and begin working with young Helen. One month later, after no breakthrough and many frustrating days, suddenly Helen caught on to Ann's approach of exposing Helen to objects and then spelling out, that object in the palm of her hand. Now once the two were able to communicate in this way, Helen at first nearly drove Anne to the point of physical exhaustion because Anne had such an appetite for learning. By age 24, Helen Keller graduated from Radcliffe, the first deaf and blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree. She also learned to speak, and she spent much of her life giving lectures. Becoming prolific at both writing and speaking, she ended up publishing 12 books and numerous articles. She became an advocate for those with disabilities. She learned to uh, hear by reading people's lips with her hands. She was tireless in her efforts to raise funds for the American Foundation for the Blind. Now on a side note, she's largely credited with introducing the Japanese Akita breed of dogs into the United States. Ann Sullivan introduced Helen Keller to the well-known minister by the name of Philip Brooks who in turn introduced Helen to Jesus Christ and to Christianity. Helen later said of Jesus, I always knew he was there. I just didn't know his name. Now regardless of her radical, political, and social views, Helen Keller became an inspiration to many people, particularly those with disabilities. Hers is a story of somebody going from darkness to light. Now folks, as we look this morning at Psalm 19, we see that God has communicated with us. Man is born in darkness. Man is born in deadness to sin. Trespasses in sin. 
But God in His grace has revealed Himself to us. Now without God's initiative, we would be hopelessly lost, condemned not only to darkness in this life, but also darkness throughout all of eternity. Now I want us to look at this psalm today because it's actually going to be in our Sunday school lessons beginning next month. We're excited that beginning next month in September and running for three years from youth through adults we'll be studying a new curriculum known as the Gospel Project. The Gospel Project is a three-year curriculum in scope and sequence. It's published by Lifeway of the Southern Baptist Convention and it's designed to help students learn all 66 books of the Bible and to understand how the entire revelation of God's Word is a revelation that truly tells one redemptive story that climaxes, of course, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, oftentimes Bible readers don't understand what in the world Jonah, for example, has to do with Jesus. And they begin reading the Bible as though it's some kind of disconnected series of stories that have absolutely nothing to do with each other. It never seems to click that there's a unity that runs from Genesis through Revelation and each book advances the narrative in some way. But because of our failure to see that, it's like what W.A. Criswell said on one occasion, oftentimes we don't understand or see that scarlet thread of redemption that runs all the way through the Bible. Now again, the, the gospel project seeks to correct this. Now, it's written on a layman's level, but while written on a layman's level, it takes advantage of the contributions of, of men and scholars like D.A. Carson, for example. Now, on anybody's list in academic circles, Dr. D.A. Carson is probably viewed uh, as one of the greatest scholars alive today anywhere in the world in biblical studies. In fact, probably uh, Dr. Carson along with Al Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, probably between those two, they're, they're pretty largely viewed as the intellectual leaders of the evangelical community today. Dr. D.A. Carson has part in, in this literature and along with him, Dr. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern uh, Seminary. And there, then there are well-known pastors like, like James McDonald and, and J.D. Greer and Matt Chandler, all who took part in this. Now as I studied through it, I noticed along with a wonderful job of Bible exposition, they really bring in a lot of theology and history along with the Bible exposition. One of our teachers recently commented about his experience looking through the material. He said, it's the only Sunday school curriculum we've ever had that I didn't feel like I needed to break away from the material and go in search of something else to add to it. It was all there. 
But again, the real beauty of the curriculum is how it seeks to, to tie together the whole canon of Scripture and help us to understand how it all fits together like a glove. Now, as I mentioned, Psalm 19 is going to be covered next month. In Psalm 19, we see the subject matter of the God who speaks. As Dr. Francis Schaeffer used to say, God is there and He is not silent. C.S. Lewis said of Psalm 19 that it's the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. But it's more than a mere poem. It's full of doctrine that has to do with how God makes Himself known to man. And so Psalm 19 deals with the doctrine of revelation. And we'll see that God, like Ann Sullivan with Helen Keller, breaks into our darkness. He communicates and that communication always demands a response. Now, First of all this morning, I want you to see with me God's revelation of Himself in the sky. Look again at uh, beginning there in verse 1. The writer says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Now the first six verses of Psalm 19 have to do with what theologians call general revelation. General revelation with natural revelation being a category of that speaks to us about how God has revealed himself to us in and through the created order. Now, unlike the false gods and idols of the Old Testament that could neither see nor speak, we serve a God who reveals Himself to us. He is a God who communicates. Hebrews 1 opens up with that statement. It says, In former times God spoke to us in many ways through the prophets and dreams and visions, but in these last days has spoken to us through His Son. He is the God who speaks. And we're told here that God even has a witness from the vast expanse of space above. The heavens preach a sermon. And I want you to notice that it is a sermon declaring the glory and the majesty of God. As Basil of Caesarea once said, In all things visible, clear reminders of the benefactor grip us. The heavens and all it contains is so glorious that it testifies to one who's even more glorious. Such a glorious creation testifies to even a more glorious creator. As Paul says in Romans 1 verse 20, he says, God reveals his attributes through nature, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Now as we witness creation and its detail, its vastness, its awesomeness, its beauty, 
we should be moved in our hearts to know that there is a supreme being who made it all. In church history, a man by the name of John of Damascus said, The heavens show forth the glory of God, not by speaking in a voice audible to sensible ears, but by manifesting to us through their own greatness the power of the Creator. And when we make comments about their beauty, we give glory to their Maker. And folks, as we see this testimony of God in nature, in creation, and we we see this song that all of creation is singing about the glory and the majesty of God, it ought to be a, a motive for us that we want to know the God who made all of this. It ought to create that desire and hunger within us. But we see in the Bible that just the opposite oftentimes happens. Paul writing to the Romans over in Romans chapter 1 says in verse 18 he says For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see what Paul is saying there? Because men love their sin, they want to push the truth of God away under the carpet. They don't want to live in submission to God's word. They suppress it. He says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He's talking about idolatry there. Men are going to worship something. We, tr- we travel around the globe and go into even remote cultures. And you know what, uh, wh- uh, what anthropologists find? They find that in every culture of every time men worship something. And if they don't worship the true and the living God, they'll make up something. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, therefore God gave them up because they refused to know the true and the living God and submit to his truth. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That's what happens. When we refuse God's testimony. 
He says here they don't glorify God. They're ungrateful. They become futile in their thoughts. Their, their hearts become darkened. They become fools. And they become idolaters. Now what does God do when men have this revelation of God and yet they simply will not believe? Paul says he turns them loose and allows them to go their own way. That's one of the worst things that God could ever do to humanity. Turn us loose to do whatever we want to do. He greases the sliding board, if you will. He gives them up to uncleanness. He gives them up to vile passions. He gives them up to a depraved mind. And when that happens, on the day of judgment, he says here that they will be without excuse. In fact, God's word teaches that all men everywhere are without excuse. Somebody says, well, what about the heathen, those who have never heard? They're without excuse. They have creation, which ought to make them hunger for God. If they'll hunger for God and God's truth, God will reveal more truth to them. God's big enough to be able to do that. I think of the case of Cornelius in the book of Acts. If they don't have the truth, it's an indicator that they don't hunger for the truth. They didn't respond to the amount of revelation they had and so they did not receive more. As Jesus said on one occasion, to the one who has, more shall be given. To the one who does not have, even what he does not have will be taken away from him. Now notice what Paul says about this Revelation of God of himself in the skies. General revelation is continuous. He says in verse 2, day to day it pours out speech. Creation utters speech. It, com it communicates the glory of God. Carl F.H. Henry, one of the great thinkers of evangelical life said, God's speech in nature is not to be confused with the nature of a talking uh, cosmos. As by those who's, who insist that nature speaks and that we must therefore hear what nature says as if nature were the voice of God. Hear God is the biblical message. Not listen to nature. Nature is God's created order and in nature God presents himself. Day to day he pours out speech through the created order. Night after night he goes on to say here in verse 2 reveals knowledge. Folks, in other words, what the writer is saying here when we talk about general revelation and God revealing himself in the created order, it is not some kind of intermittent revelation where God kind of clicks on the light switch and lets us see for maybe a day or two and then clicks off the light switch for a thousand years and then maybe clicks it on for another day or two and clicks it off and clicks it on clicks it off. No, he's saying that God's revelation of himself is continuous it's never ending every single day every single day of the week every single night of the year since the beginning of creation creation is preaching a message it is a never ending stream there is a sermon being given there is never a day that goes by that creation is not testifying to the majesty of God well, secondly, he points out here how general revelation is abundant. 
The image of uttering speech here that pours forth, it's not the idea of some kind of little trickle. Like at home when the washer starts going out in your faucet and you hear drip, drip, drip. Just a little trickle. No, the idea here is instead of seeing like Niagara Falls and this this continual gushing forth a never ending stream of refreshing waters of revelation and every part of the created order has a role in doing this if you look up to the stars and the planets and the expanse above it testifies to the glory of God if you look in a microscope at the smallest particles of creation they too tell a marvelous story James Montgomery Boyce writes, The petals of a flower, a blade of grass, a snowflake, the intricacies of the atom, the nature of light, physical laws like gravitational attraction, the second law of thermodynamics or relativity, all testify abundantly to a divine mind that lies behind them all. And moreover here, he says that it is self-evident. This revelation, in other words, lies on the surface. You don't have to be a rocket scientist trying to discover it. As Paul says again in Romans 1, 19 and 20, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Self-evident. Now folks, while it's self-evident, the more we look into matters of the universe, the more evident it should become that there is a creator. Now thirdly about general revelation, he points out here in verses 3 and 4 that it's universal. There's no tribe, there's no tongue, there's no nation, there's no people that doesn't witness God's revelation in creation. From one corner of the globe to another, men look at the sky and the sun and the moon and the stars. They look at the things of the earth and under the earth and they're able to see for themselves. As Jesus said, God makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He talks here about the sun beginning in verse 4 A tent for the sun, possibly a reference to the nighttime. In the morning the sun comes out of its tent like a bridegroom Coming out of his chamber to greet the new day Each new day when the sun arises From our perspective it, uh, it appears to arise It's like a champion, a strong man, a runner who comes out to begin the race that day. And again from end to end of the globe. Everybody can see this. Because all men of all nations. Of all peoples of all tongues. Look up at the same created order. We see the same creation that is testifying to the glory of God. Now secondly he gives testimony here. God's revelation of himself in scripture. Beginning in verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And on and on he goes, talking about God's revelation of himself, not only in the sky above, 
but in the scripture, the word of God. And so God speaks in creation, general revelation, but also in his word, which is special revelation. Through general revelation, there is a hunger created within us to know the God who's behind all of this. And then through special revelation, the Bible, we learn who God is, what he's like, and how we can know him. In fact, God reveals in the special revelation of his word that we've sinned, come short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. But we also learn that God desires a relationship with us through his son Jesus Christ, and that through Christ there is forgiveness of sin. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 24. In verse 27 he said, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 44 he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now notice there the three divisions of the Old Testament. There was Moses. That's a reference to the law or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Then he talks about the prophets. Then he talks about the Psalms or the wisdom literature. So don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that all three major divisions of the Old Testament point to who? It points to him. You see, folks, it's not just the New Covenant. It's not just the New Testament that tells us about Jesus. But Jesus said, rightly read and, and studied even the Old Covenant. The Old Testament testifies of him. And not just a small portion of it, but every single part of it gives testimony to him. It's like what we find in Genesis 3.15. Where God says to Adam and Eve, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A first reference there to the gospel. That's why in Acts chapter 8 when we read about the Ethiopian eunuch that had been up to Jerusalem to worship and while there he'd gotten a scroll of the prophet Isaiah he was going back to Ethiopia in his chariot in, in, in the desert he was reading Isaiah and Philip overheard this. God sent Philip out there and he listened. And the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from Isaiah chapter 53, and he asked the eunuch, he said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless somebody interprets it for me? Who's he speaking of here, he says, of himself or of somebody else? He invited Philip up into the chariot, and the Bible says Philip took that text, Isaiah. And from that text, he preached Jesus to him. From the prophet Isaiah. Not just from the New Testament, but from the prophet Isaiah. He preached Jesus to him and the guy was saved. All of scripture gives witness and testimony to Jesus Christ. 
Well, notice what he says about God's Word here. What God's Word is, it's perfect. It's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean. It's true and righteous. What we have in the Word of God is not just simply the words of men. It is the Word of God. Word, look at words used here to describe the Word of God. The law, if you break even human laws, there are consequences to deal with. Likewise with God's laws. There's testimony. God's word testifies to him. That's another word used here. Uh, a third word that's used here about God's word is precepts or statutes. A fourth is commandment. A fifth is the rules, that is the judgments. Now what's he say God's word does? Well first of all in verse 7 he says it revives the soul. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that through the word of God we learn of our sin but we also learn of a Savior and we're able to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ through the scripture. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It revives the soul. He goes on here to say it makes wise the simple. Paul said not only does the word of God introduce you to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ but the word of God is able to equip the man of God for every good work it rejoices the heart in verse 8 it enlightens the eyes it warns it rewards verse 11 no wonder in verse 10 he says more to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and, and drippings of the honeycomb Folks, it's important to see that there is no conflict between the way God has revealed himself in the sky and the way he reveals himself in the scripture. You see what he's saying here in Psalm 19? God's revelation of himself in the sky, in the created order, God's revelation of himself in scripture, general revelation, special revelation. The two do not contradict one another, the two complement one another. It's a glove that all fits together. Beautiful harmony. You know, in the scientific community today, even some key scientists are coming to faith in Jesus Christ because they can't ignore the witness anymore. They're studying things like the teleological argument, the, order, uh, the argument of design, and, and they're looking in their microscopes, and they're seeing all the design and atoms and the irreducible complexity, how uh, this part couldn't have evolved and waited on this part, because all these different parts had, had to be together to function. Like Dr. Stephen Myers has said, uh, a key scientist uh, of, our, of our current times. That mathematically it's absolutely impossible for these things to have happened. The way evolution says by random and by chance. Oh but the evolutionist would have you, have you believe kind of like I heard Frank Peretti say. That we got from, from goo to you by way of the zoo. From goo to you by way of the zoo. And that's absolutely absurd. It's ridiculous. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, He is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, My father wrote them 
both. Thirdly, man's response to God's revelation. Well, if God has spoken to, if he's the God who speaks, he speaks in the sky and in the scripture, what are we to do about it? It demands a response. So in verses 12 and 13, he says, help me to not sin against you, God. And in verse 14, he says, help my life to glorify you, God. And so everywhere in the Bible, once receiving the word of God, God's people were to respond in service that brought glory to God. For example, Adam and Eve... They were placed in the garden. They were to tend the garden, have dominion over the created order. They were given an assignment. Noah, Noah was to build the ark. Moses, Moses was to go back to Egypt to deliver God's people. Abraham was to be part in in building a new nation. The disciples in the New Testament were to get busy about the Great Commission. Everywhere we look in the Bible, receiving and appropriating the revelation of God meant a life change. Repentance and faith and then service. There was never once a case where people once confronted with God's word were merely to walk away the same as they were before. I think of Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost preaching that sermon at Pentecost. And the Bible says the people's hearts were pricked and said, Brethren, what do we need to do? And Peter said, Repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and and be baptized for the remission of your sins. In other words, they were to be transformed and they were to live different lives because of this message they had received. God speaks. In the sky and in the scripture. He confronts us in our lostness, in our darkness. He shines the light. We're to receive it and be transformed. And then serve him. Also, along with the created order and the scripture, also giving glory to the one who has redeemed us. That's the way we're to live our lives. So some lessons here. I've given you four of them in your sermon notes. See creation as God's work of art and be in awe of Him and His power. Secondly, hunger for God. Ask God to create and stir this hunger. Thirdly, read His word in order to know His truth. And fourthly, allow God's word to transform your life. He's the God who speaks. He confronts us in our sin, in our transgression. We've sinned against a holy God. He confronts us in our sin. He reveals to us His plan of dealing with that there at the cross. He redeems us, reconciles us to Himself, and then commissions us to go forth. Different than we were before. Would you bow with me in prayer please? Again, I want to remind you today that it's God's word that tells us that on our own we cannot know God. 
We're spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And in that state, we don't even seek God. God has to be the initiator. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless my Father's Spirit draws him. And so where men are hungering for God, I can assure you that God is already there dealing with that heart. If you're convicted of your sin and lostness, it's because God is doing that. The Bible says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Maybe you want to come forward this morning and say, Pastor, I need Christ. I'd love to pray with you about you turning your life, surrendering your life over to Christ. He's Lord regardless of you and me. You and and I need to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. If you've never done that, I want to ask you to do that today. Confess Him as Lord. If you've already made that decision, get into God's Word. It's a treasure. God's Word will tell you everything about yourself and God that you need to know for living in this world. Maybe you've gotten away from His Word. Get back into it. And see how it all fits together so beautifully. I want to encourage you, if you're not a part of a Sunday school class, this would be a perfect time as we begin this study next month. Get in one. Be a part of that three-year scope and sequence. Seeing how it all fits together, the beauty of, of God's revelation. Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. Because of that, there's hope. When we're in sin and lostness, there's hope. When we're in grief, there's hope. When we're in trial, there's hope. Because you've spoken. And so, Father, I pray that that one today who needs Christ, would hear your voice and come to you. To the one who needs to get back to immersing themselves in your word and letting your word revive their soul, I pray that they would do that. For the one who needs a church home and a Sunday school class where they can fellowship and study together, God, I pray that they would make that decision today. Lord, knowing you speak, that we would never be the same. Transform us, conform us to the image of your Son. And help us not to be conformed to this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please? I'll be here to pray with those who need Christ. Need a, new, need a church home. For those who might want to make a, a commitment in some way to get back into God's treasure book, you've gotten away from that. 
you make that commitment today. Remember, revelation demands a response. What will your response be?